Hello and welcome to Strange Sound, the podcast featuring me, Joe. Joe from upstate New York. That's as far as I'm going to go. Some of you out there know who I am. Um, Shout out to all of you who know who I am and shout out to all of you who don't know who I am. Um, Some of you may know me from my... uh, regular life. Some may also know me from my affiliations with various musical groups like Big Green. Uh, This is a fitting place to remind you that uh, I was also um, part of the brain trust behind um, the podcast This Is Big Green. Also the Ned Trek podcast, uh, which you can um, access at big-green.net. Um, Just follow the podcast tab and you will get all you need to know about that. Anyway, that's who I am. Who are you? Well, we'll find out. But anyway, um, here we are in June here in upstate New York, uh, an area of New York that um, has been not entirely inaccurately described as something like rural Alabama. Um, Just to make it clear, I do live in a small city in upstate New York. Um, It's a relatively cosmopolitan city. There are a number of progressive people living here, but it's living in kind of a lake of of, um, very red areas Um, in terms of politics. The the typical description of red, though uh, anyone who's at my age realizes that these simple designations of colors to um, conservatism and liberalism or Democrats and Republicans, these things shift over time. I can remember a time when red was associated with Democrats and blue was associated with Republicans um, back in the day. Uh, that's ages me a little bit, but there you go. Um, when you think of New York, if you're not a New Yorker, um, you think of it as being kind of a liberal state. Uh, that's mostly because of the urban areas, and particularly New York, of course. I think most people know that. A lot of people from other states um, probably don't much think about upstate New York, but upstate New York is is a vast area. Um, it's a beautiful place in a lot of ways. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of progressive people up here, but we are far outnumbered by um, right-wing folks, uh, Republicans, uh, Trumpistas, um, you name it. In the countryside, it gets very, very conservative around here. So, and and there's a variety of reasons for that. I'm not going to go into that in this in this podcast, obviously, but. Uh, Just to sort of situate um, where I'm coming to you from, that's where I'm coming to you from. Uh, I am a New Yorker, but I am not a downstate New Yorker. Uh, I should say my wife lived there, lived in Manhattan for 20 years. Um, Our families are both from upstate, so that's, that's where we landed, and that's where we're at. And so, anyway... What are we going to talk about today? Well, you know, last time around I talked about some of the ongoing um, demonstrations. Uh, I've 
touched on that subject, as I've said many times on this podcast before, there are plenty of people who are covering this and covering it well. There are plenty of folks on the front lines who are posting on Twitter and sharing video and sharing commentaries that are much more informed than anything you could ever get from me. So the only thing I can say is if if you really want to know about <laughs> what's happening with regard to that, um, aside from my kind of, you know, perhaps ill-considered opinions about it, um, I would just go to Twitter. I would just look and see how things are going. There are plenty of people who are reporting on this. And experiencing it firsthand, I have not been. Um, I've been observing it. And again, strange sound, just to get back to my standard disclaimer, is just my opinion. These are opinions that I alone hold. They are not opinions held by anyone associated with me, not by my employer, not by any other associates of mine, not even like family members. So um, this is all me, all me. Anyway, that out of the way, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about about the persistence of white privilege in America and how that's sort of um, perpetuating itself um, and attempting to perpetuate itself even as white people become less and less of a majority um, and start um, heading into what could be considered min- minority status within the next couple of decades. We may, uh, white people, and I say we because I am a white person, um, may be um, a large minority um, in a couple of decades and maybe the single largest group, but a minority nonetheless. And I don't think it's, <laughs> it isn't the sole province of the Republican Party, but I don't think there's any question but that the Republican Party's, as currently comported, is organized around the principle of white supremacy and white rule and the furtherance of white privilege. Now, that's not to say that the Democratic Party is not a participant in that as well. It certainly is, but to a lesser extent. It's less central to the Democratic Party at this point in its history. And the reason for that is that its primary constituency is no longer no longer white people. It's no longer exclusively white people. It has, by necessity, a very diverse voter base. It depends on a very diverse voter base in order to... Uh, elect its representatives. So the uh, Republican Party, much less so. So it's not surprising that a large part of the political project of the Republican Party is to minimize minority participation in, in politics, whether it be electoral politics or otherwise. This is nothing new. And just to abstract away from the parties themselves because this because parties are 
They're living organizations, right? They change over the decades, over the centuries. The Democratic Party is a very old party. So is the Republican Party now. And both parties have shifted because they're made up of people and they um, exist in whatever political moment um, is current at any given period. And, and so necessarily they are going to change over time. That's certainly true of the Democratic Party and it's certainly true of the Republican Party. But that said, they're both, both of these parties um, from the very beginning have been institutions um, founded by people with influence, you know, for people with influence, and mostly dedicated to perpetuating that influence. The degree to which the Democratic Party has departed from that since the middle of the last century is a function of the degree to which they have depended on the support of working people and people of color. And that has marginally pushed that party to the left over the years. Um, It's had a lot of pushback, been pulled back and forth over the years. As we know, we've seen the Democratic Leadership Council um, years of the of the Democratic Party, so we know we know the story of that. I mean that that was an effort to sort of make the Democratic Party more like the Republican Party. But the Republican Party has certainly traveled as well, right? The Republican Party has gone through a number of political gyrations. I'd say particularly since the 1960s, it has steered right and continued to steer right. Some people would argue that there was a minor um, interruption in that during the Ford years. I tend to disagree just because relative to what had come before, Ford was, was a pretty conservative president. He just didn't have the opportunity to do very much. He had a very short time in office. But (laughs) it's worth noting that during his tenure, his brief two-year tenure as president of the United States, well, we did help Indonesia invade East Timor. We began the genocide that occurred in East Timor. Um, So that's worth noting, certainly worth noting. Um, For those of you who think that Gerald Ford was like a great, um, tolerant and decent president. So the Republican Party has gone straight to the right pretty much from the 1950s forward uh, through the 1960s, really you know, picking up steam in the 1960s and the 1970s through 80s particularly. So the Reagan era was another lurch to the right Uh, a bit further than before. And of course, during and subsequent to the presidency of Bill Clinton, it has gone way off the map. The neoconservative turn during the George W. Bush presidency, that was kind of the nucleus around which Trumpism um, was was formed. I mean, the, the base support for George W. Bush towards the end of his of his two terms 
that sort of residue of support was really the base that made up the um, the Tea Party, and then later on, um, the nucleus around which uh, Trump built his all-white coalition in 2016 and forward. So how has this um, ruling white elite in the United States perpetuated its power? The, um, the ruling white land-owning, property-owning, I should say, elite. That's pretty obvious, and there's people who could, you know, obviously speak more intelligently about this. But, I mean, from the beginning, we have a system, a constitutional system, that was predicated on the supremacy of white people, right? Um, The Three-Fifths Compromise... Uh, the Electoral College, the Senate, all of these provisions and institutions were set up to protect landowners, to um, protect property owners, to perpetuate white privilege. The Electoral College in particular is an expression of this sort of white supremacy. I think Probably the best explanation of this I've heard recently was on a recent episode of uh, Chris Hayes's uh, Why Is This Happening podcast, where he talks to, and I'm going to get the guy's name, his name is Jesse Wegman, who wrote a book called Let the People Pick the President. And I'm going to include a link to this podcast in the show notes The fact that we have an electoral college gives the Republican Party, and I know this has been disputed by Trump himself. He keeps irrationally saying, I mean, he he has an absolute talent for getting things backwards. But he irrationally has claimed that the electoral college advantages Democrats. It does no such thing. That's ridiculous largely advantages Republicans. And we know that just from the fact that over the past five elections, um, two have been decided by the Electoral College against, against the popular vote. So the person who lost the popular vote was elected by virtue of the Electoral College. Twice. And they've both been Republicans. Um, <laughs> now, that's that's an outrage. Um, and it's something that has grown worse over the decades just because of essentially the distribution of population in the United States. Um, the, the concentration of diverse communities in certain states and in urban areas um, has helped to make the Electoral College even more unrepresentative of the popular vote than it it has been in previous decades. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, I may have mentioned this on the, on the podcast before, I had a social studies teacher who um, was talking about the Electoral College and telling us how, I mean, that's the way the president is selected. The popular vote doesn't really 
um, the national popular vote doesn't really affect, doesn't play a role in the selection of the president. Um, it's, it's a question of who gets the most electoral votes. And that teacher at the time had said, you know, if it ever happened that someone won the electoral college but lost the popular vote, um, they'd probably agree to have the winner of the popular vote take the presidency. And there was a kind of an old-fashioned optimism about that (laughs) because it hadn't happened, right? I mean, it sort of happened with Hayes, you know, back in 1876, but not entirely. There was kind of like a deal cut. And, uh, you know, moving forward, we, we, as I said, we've seen it happen twice. And I mean, this is a means to perpetuate the Republican Party and thereby perpetuate the supremacy of white rule. Because more than anything else, the Republican Party is an identity politics party. It is mostly about white people. Not to say that there aren't people of color who are Republicans, but I'm just saying it is essentially driven by white people. And the vast majority of Republicans are white people. Um, And that's the Electoral College is essentially protecting their claim to power. Um, The Senate does as well, right? It's based on the same distributive principle in a sense or similar, right? So how many people in Montana, right? They get how many people in, uh, in Wyoming, 549,914 people in Wyoming. How many people in California? Well, let's see. Uh, Almost 40 million. Okay? 40 million people versus about half a million people. Wyoming gets two senators. California gets two senators. And Wyoming's, one of Wyoming's senators is in the leadership. Um, John Barrasso. Right? So he actually has outsized influence aside from being, you know, representative of a much smaller constituency than someone from California who represents 40 million people, so 80 times the population. I mean, that's a gross example, but still. Uh, Two senators per state, regardless of how um, how many people are resident or how many people live in that state, Uh, That adds up in the Senate, and the Senate is a very powerful body. And as you can see, and we have seen (laughs) the Senate grow redder and redder um, with every election cycle. That's not to say that it can't go Democratic, but it's it's a tough climb. It's becoming a tougher climb. I think there's um, there are a couple of scholars. Um, I think Norman Ornstein, maybe one of them, who uh, wrote about a uh, possible scenario 
a, what they consider a, a likely scenario that the Senate would be just a permanently Republican minority rule um, institution that, you know, um, 40% of the people in the United States or 30% of the people in the United States will hold 70% of the seats in in the Senate just because of the way the way constituencies are distributed in the United States. So it'd be like a 30-70 split. And 70% of the population will be re- represented by about 30 senators. Uh, that's That's another way, aside from the Electoral College, that they are, the Republicans are able to preserve white privilege and white power. Right? Another way, (laughs) and there are more, and a lot of you know this, is through gerrymandering, which the Republicans were very successful at and very, um, well, let's say they took the long view in 2010 when they took control of a number of state legislatures um, throughout the country in the sort of uh, right-wing backlash election after the election of Barack Obama when uh, the sort of liberal coalition that elected Obama had sort of clapped its hands together, done a little, uh, done a little um, volunteer work, you know, did a day of volunteer activities and then went home and forgot about politics for the next two years. And in 2010, got their clocks cleaned in a year when the census was being done and reapportionment was going to move forward. And what happened was they very scientifically, very surgically, very in a very sophisticated fashion, gerrymandered um, districts across the country, not only congressional districts, but state legislative districts, so that they would lock in. I mean, first what they did was they won elections. And and (laughs) it's not that hard to win a legislative election. Um, It's not that expensive. Um, If you're the Koch brothers or if you're some other um, right-wing funder, if you pour money into select races in a number of different states. Uh, And they were very methodical about targeting these races. They knew where they needed to throw their money to, to build a majority so that they could make exclusively make the decisions about where to draw the lines in 2010. And that's exactly what they did. And so what they've done effectively, it just, you know, again, there are plenty of people who have talked about this. Um, I'm sure most of the people who would listen to this podcast have heard this story before. I think there's a book about it um, called Rat Fucked, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, uh, obviously, you know, check some some of the uh, some of the better references on this, but. Um, Effectively, what they did was they they made it so that 
not only the House of Representatives, but all of these state legislatures are now kind of, they're kind of comported more like the Senate in that the the number of representatives from each party does not reflect the statewide vote for one party or the other. So, for instance, in Wisconsin um, in 2018, Democrats um, voted in legislative races. Um, there were 55% of the votes were for Democrats, 45% were for Republicans, roughly speaking. And the um, makeup of the legislature in Wisconsin was the exact opposite. It was like 55% to 60% Republican and 45% Democrat. Um, so there's this enormous hill that you have to get over in order for for Democrats to sort of get get back into power. And I, I don't want to make this sound completely one-sided. Now, the, the Republicans were methodical and incredibly sophisticated about how they approached gerrymandering um, in the wake of the 2010 census. But they also had some support from sort of careerist Democrats who wanted to keep their safe seats. Um, I've heard some um, reporting about this from Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the reasons why um, the legislative map is still lopsided in Pennsylvania is because the institutional Democratic Party was essentially trying to protect some of its own. Um, again, I'm not going to go into detail about that because I'm not I'm not an expert on that. This is just reporting that I've heard. So I don't want to make it sound like it's all one side, but the effect is to perpetuate Republican control on behalf of white people, even as white people become less and less an electoral majority. And the last component of this, so we've got, you know, the Electoral College, we've got the Senate, you know, just the constitutional, you know, these are the constitutional constraints on on, on popular will. Uh, we've got gerrymandering, which is a way to make... Um, not only the House of Representatives, but state legislatures even less representative than they would be otherwise, and locking in Republican majorities. And then finally, um, voter suppression, which is just rampant, particularly since since the Supreme Court struck down um, the preclearance condition section of the Voting Rights Act. And uh, voting rights have been corralled rather badly um, in the wake of that decision. A lot of new restrictions. But just as importantly, I mean, voter ID laws, um, yeah, that's, that's problematic. Um, but those things like that can almost be counteracted by um, activism and people, you know, uh, volunteers going out and helping people get the ID they need in order to allow them to vote, um, that sort of thing. It's, you can overcome that. 
the types of things that I'm I, that I think are even more restrictive, and again, other people have reported on this much better than I could, but um, it's restricting the ability to vote just by closing down polling locations, um, shutting down um, the ability to register people, um, opposing vote by mail, but also making vote by mail almost impossible. But particularly this this thing about polling locations, and this is this is what we saw in Wisconsin. Uh, this is what we've seen in Georgia, where they've where they closed hundreds of polling locations, um, people waiting in line for hours to vote, hours in in predominantly predominantly Democratic and Black and Hispanic neighborhoods, specifically to disadvantage Democratic constituencies. But I mean, more more generally speaking, just people of color um, and urban dwellers and, and people who are more or less um, on the lower echelons of society, right? And the same thing is happening um, this week and probably by the time I post this, episode it will already have happened uh in kentucky and i see that ari berman uh shared on twitter the fact that in kentucky for the primary on tuesday of this week kentucky cut the number of polling places from 3700 to 200 from 3700 polling places in the state of kentucky to 200 polling stations and that there will be one polling place for the 616,000 registered voters in Louisville's Jefferson County, where half of the state's black voters live. One polling place in a county that has 616,000 registered voters. How can this happen? How can we allow this to happen? They are literally blocking people from voting. And it says here, and Berman says here, this is going to be a disaster. And he's absolutely right. It's designed to be a disaster. They are literally stopping people from voting by eliminating polling locations, by making it impossible to get there. And in in the midst of the COVID crisis, by making people choose between their health and their ability to vote, which is what happened in Wisconsin a few weeks back. I should say that here in New York, which is supposedly a progressive state, um, anyone who's lived here knows that that's not true with regard to elections. They've allowed no excuse absentee balloting vote by mail essentially in New York. Um, you have to follow a certain protocol. You have to apply for a ballot. The applications were sent to us, my my wife and I, um, at home. Um, we filled out the applications, sent them back, uh, well within um, the period of time that you were supposed to that they, you were provided with to respond. Um, we sent them in before the deadline for sending them in. We never received our ballots. 
Um, the primary is this coming Tuesday. It will probably be, um, if I post this on Wednesday, it will have been yesterday in your time, in my time. It's in a couple of days. Um, <laughs> on Friday, this is the Friday before the Tuesday primary. And again, it's kind of a moot primary because, you know, Bernie Sanders has has already said that he's he's basically suspended his campaign, right? But for folks that want to sort of in, in, increase his influence at the Democratic National Convention, um, I've, I've been encouraging people to vote for Bernie anyway and Bernie's slate of delegates. Um, in any case, the ballot didn't arrive. I called our board of elections on Friday and said, where the hell is my ballot? And they said, well, we sent them out on Monday. And I said, well, no, we didn't receive it. Um, the board of elections is in the same town that I live in. So if they had sent them, they would have on Monday, they would have arrived on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> they never arrived. It's Saturday. We have Saturday delivery here. Still haven't arrived. Uh, the person I talked to on the phone said, well, there are early voting locations. You can go there. And I said, well, you know, my, my wife has, you know, um, some underlying conditions. I don't want to bring her out to vote unless we absolutely have to. And the person on the other end of the phone said, well, you know, we can, we're sorry for the inconvenience. We, we can resend the ballot. And I said, well, that's all well and good, but it's Friday. When is the ballot going to get there? It has to be postmarked by election day. I mean, seriously, they're not leaving us any time whatsoever to do this. Um, so th there are problems everywhere. And I don't want you to think that because I live in New York State that we're not faced with the same problem. I mean, they wanted to cancel this primary. We had to sort of wrench it back from them. And this is a state run by Democrats. Right, so the it's not all one side, but it's clear that in most of the races that matter across the country, what we're seeing is a determined attempt to keep people from the polls. That is the fourth piece of this. That is how you preserve white privilege. You keep people of color from voting in Wisconsin, in Georgia. Um in Kentucky, in all these states where, you know, a few thousand votes can make, make a difference. And you're, you're literally keeping probably hundreds of thousands of people from the polls. I mean, there are various other means, obviously, striking people from the voter rolls, etc. So, I mean, those are the four components. What else is there to say about this? Well, all I can say is do whatever you can to make your voice heard. Vote. If early voting is available, vote early. If vote by mail is, is available, vote by mail. If someone needs help voting, um, getting to the polls, um, volunteer to help them. Um, we need people to vote. We also need people to stand up and, and protest and push our leaders in the right direction. That's really the harder job. But... I know I talked about that last time. I really wanted to just sort of touch on this uh, because I made it sound like it's voting is easy. It's kind of an easy decision 
um, as to who you're going to vote for, I think. But the act of voting is being attacked. And the impact of voting is, of course, mediated by these not only these constitutional restrictions, such as the Electoral College and the Senate, but also these kind of legislative manipulations like um, gerrymandering and closing polling locations and um, laws that restrict voter access. We got to fight this stuff. Anyway, that's all I got to say about it. Once again, I encourage you to share your comments. Um, you can leave a voicemail at anchor.fm slash strange sound. You can tweet at me at strange sound pod at strange sound pod on Twitter. Um, you can find our Facebook page. If you go to anchor.fm slash strange sound, you can also, um, Find relevant links at big-green.net. Just click on the podcast tab and have at it. Hope to hear from you. Stay safe out there. Vote if you can. Best of luck to all of you. We'll talk soon. Bye now.